And you know what's interesting? Because uh, even kind of participating together and filling out this survey dovetails really nicely into what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you're new with us, what we've been doing for the last several years is studying through the Gospel of John. And we've come to this place in the book of John where John, one of Jesus' followers is writing about Jesus' last moments with his disciples. And he has instructed them for a little while. And then at the very beginning of chapter 17, he launches into what commentators and scholars and theologians and Bible people call the high priestly prayer. They call it that because Jesus has been called our high priest, the one who intercedes for us on behalf of God. And he begins to pray for his disciples. And in the middle of this prayer, <coughs> John chapter 17, in the middle of this prayer, Jesus makes a, a statement that's absolutely profound. It's, it's absolutely profound what he says. Look, right in the middle of it, he says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So here's what Jesus is saying. Those that you have entrusted to me, heavenly, he's speaking to his heavenly father, those of you entrusted to me, those, those are mine. I am their shepherd and they are yours as well, okay? And I am glorified in them. Glorified, sometimes we use that word in church and people say glory be or God is glorified or glory to God or whatever. It just means attention. You, you get attention, you get fame, you get notoriety. So what Jesus is saying is that in their living walking in their community together, in their inner life. The prayer is that Jesus would get attention and fame. Does that make sense? I am glorified in them, in their life, that Jesus is going to, like the spotlight is going to get shown on, on him. I'm glorified in them. And then he says, and, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Now, if you were a disciple, you might hit the pause button right here and go, uh, baking powder? <laughs> Excuse me? Say that again? Okay, we understand that you're going to be with the Father, Jesus. You've said that like a whole bunch of times. But, but now, <clears throat> what you're saying is, I'm no longer in the world. Therefore, I'm not glorifying the Father anymore, right? Because I'm no longer in the world. But guess what? You are. Oh, no. Can we see where this is going? That Jesus is saying to his disciples that you need to become the Jesus that the world needs to see. And that's exactly what happened. The, the disciples became the Jesus that the world needed to see. By that I mean they had watched Jesus love them, walk among them, heal people, teach they had watched him be generous. They had watched him do so many things. Now he's leaving the world and he's saying, okay, now you go live that out. Go glorify me. Take what you've seen in me and go be that to the world. He's passing the baton. He's passing the torch. He's saying, I'm not going to be here anymore, but, but, that's a huge, big conjunction there and, and and he's saying but you're going to be in the world so you carry the baton forward now now he's praying for his disciples he's praying for his disciples and he's about to pray for you ready Jesus says I don't ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word 
Isn't that cool? Anybody ever tell you, you ever heard this before, Jesus did not intend to start a church. He did not intend to start a movement with people all the way. Yes, he did. He prayed for them. Of course he did. There's a little forethought here, isn't there? I'm not just praying for you, but I'm praying for those who will believe in you or believe in me through your word, through your glorifying me, through your life. I am praying for them too. And I am praying for them the very same thing that I am praying for you. And so if the disciples became the Jesus that the world needed to see, then here it is for me, you are the Jesus that somebody needs to see. And you may be their only shot. I hate to put that pressure on you. Actually, I don't. I didn't feel bad about that at all. <laughs> and, and, and if you know me at all, you know how, how I preach. I put the main points up here, and then I highlight in yellow what's most important. And, and in this point right here, you know what's most important? That blank right there. You are the Jesus that your family needs to see. You're the Jesus that your classmate needs to see. Put a name in there. You're the Jesus that Philip needs to see. You're the Jesus that Bethany needs to see. You have been given a charge, men and women of God, to glorify the Son, to give him fame and attention and turn the spotlight on him in the ways that you walk among the world in the ways that you treat people, in the ways that you simply look into somebody else's eye, not as if they are a chore or a hindrance, but you wait, the way that you look into somebody else's eye and say, you are made in the image of God and loved by him. No matter how messed up you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how broken I am, you are loved by God, and you are the Jesus that the world needs to see. This is what Jesus is going to pray for us here in John chapter 17. But here's what I want to do. I want to do one thing so that we can kind of shift this a little bit and further own this responsibility. And I want to say this just a little bit of a different way. So if you're a note taker, write this down. I am the Jesus that somebody needs to see. And, and, and would you put a name in this blank for me, please? Don't just say somebody. Don't just say, well, theoretically, if I had the opportunity, there is somebody in your life that needs to see and experience Jesus, that needs to see him glorified for who he is so that he can heal them, so that he can transform them, so that he can do the work that only he can do of redemption. And it's on you, it's on your shoulders to live out his life in such a way that the world sees him for who he is. This is where we're going this morning. This is where we're going to land as we unpack the rest of John chapter 17. So let's pray together and we'll get into the passage. Oh God, I do want to strike a delicate balance this morning. Maybe not a delicate balance, but even an understanding that there are two parts of this thing that really go hand in hand. And when I start talking about responsibility and the onus is on us and, we, and the baton has been given to us and now it's time to run and show the world who you are and your love. 
My natural inclination is to pull myself up by the bootstraps and grit my teeth and just do it. And yet, oh God, you have said that those who wait upon you will renew their strength. Jesus, you have said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So teach us, God, as we accept this responsibility that you've given to us to manifest your glory to the world and to tell people about your great love for them, that we would do that from a place of trusting and resting and not from a place of trying and striving. Let your spirit rest heavy on us today and let us rest heavy in you. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Jesus uh, continues his high priestly prayer. Kevin kicked it off last week, verses one through five. Verse six, he says, I've manifested your name to the people that you gave me out of the world. He's talking about his disciples there. It says, yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. The one critical piece that I want you to see here in the, first, or the next couple of verses in John chapter 17 is that Jesus says, I have manifested your name. Understand that this concept of manifesting the name of God is that Jesus is saying, I have embodied, lived out in my behavior, in my character, in my interactions with people, your name. And in first century Jewish culture, someone's name represented all of who they were, their character, their personality, what they liked, what they didn't like. It's not just like the thing that they sign at the end of a letter. So when Jesus says, I've manifested your name, he's saying, I embodied all of who you are to people. He's praying to God. He said, God, I showed them, Father, I showed them who you are by the way I interact with them. So, so distinguish these in your mind from me. Not, I have told them your truth. Not, not I, I, I have made sure they understood. Not even, I have told them about you. But this is about behavior. Although he did tell us and tell the disciples about God. All, yep, yep, he did that. But right now he's saying, in my very being, in my behavior, in my core, in my passions, in my will... I have brought to bear for the world to see the God of the universe. That's what Jesus has done. He goes on. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed, that's the name of our series, that's our key word throughout John, they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, for uh, uh, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Understand that Jesus is not saying, I never pray for the world. He often prays for the world. We have uh, those examples in the, in the Gospels. But right now, right now, he's praying for his little group of disciples, and then he'll start to pray for us. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and here we are. I am glorified in them. We've already been here. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I think it's fascinating here that the very first thing Jesus prays for his disciples, knowing that he is sending them out into the world to be beacons of light and hope, to carry the torch forward, to be the Jesus that the world needs to see, the very first thing he says is keep them in your name. 
He says, I am praying for them that you would protect them. And, and he's saying, as you protect them, allow them to glorify me. Allow them, Heavenly Father, to manifest me and you to the world. Keep going. It says, all mine are yours, and I'm glorifying them, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And he says, while I was with them, next verse, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Other translations would say son of perdition. This is Judas, that the one that went away, the one that's now betrayed Jesus and left, physically left the Passover room that uh, they were just in, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Once again, Jesus prays for protection. What does he say? I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I know too many Christians who by their behavior, tell me that they disagree with Jesus on this. Because their number one goal is to get out of the world as quickly as they can. Mm. By that, I don't mean go to heaven. That's not what I mean. By that, I mean retreat from anyone who doesn't call themselves a Christian and hang out with Christians all the time. I know a lot of Christians that do that. They're in choir and Bible studies and BSF and CBS and FBI and CIA and all kinds of other <laughs> initials of things. I don't have anything against those things. We host some of those things on our campus. Like I don't have any problem with that. What, what I have an issue with is that the world desperately needs to see Jesus. You may be their only opportunity. And if you don't know any non-Christians, we've got a problem, don't we? I mean, that's not like crazy cool, like, man, he must have a master's in theology kind of stuff, right? But, but what, what Jesus is also praying here is that he doesn't want us to begin to adopt the value systems of the world, right? He doesn't want us to start to deal in the currency of power and prestige and fame. He's praying that we would be protected. So here's, here's the metaphor, and I love this metaphor. Jesus is praying to keep the ship in the water and keep the water out of the ship. That's what he's praying for. You know what I mean? Do I need to unpack that metaphor? For some of you, you're going, ships and water, where did that come from? Your life is the ship. The world is the water. The ship should not stay in the harbor. I gotta be really careful how I say that, don't I? The ship should not, oh, the ship does not stay in the harbor. The ship is meant to get in the water, right? That's the only way the ship can accomplish its mission. That's the, way, that's the reason the ship was built. If it stays in the harbor, it just might look good. That's it. But it doesn't, it doesn't serve any purpose. But you get that ship out on the water, and it begins to serve its purpose, and then water gets into the ship, we got a problem. Right? So here's the deal. Mm. What Jesus is praying for us is that like a ship, we would be in the water. We would be in the world. We would be fulfilling our purpose and our mission 
to tell people about God's great love for them, to be the Jesus that they so desperately need to see. But at the same time, we don't begin to adopt the value systems of the world. I don't know about you, but, but, but for me and the Christians I hang out with and know, almost no one has this perfect. In fact, I would say that nobody I know has this balance perfect. Like, they, they either stay in the harbor a little too much or they take on water a little too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so here's the deal. You probably lean one of those ways. You probably lean towards, I'm a Christian that stays in the harbor. I don't know a lot of non-Christians. I stay in the safety of, you know, my Christian circles and my holy huddle and all that stuff. Okay? And then you may be on the other side where you're like, man, I got out into the water, into the world, and I began to take on water pretty quickly. In fact, Friday night, I took on a lot of water, if you know what I mean, right? Like, you, that may be you. Okay, so I would say two things. We're all in process, and God loves you. He has grace for you. Either side. Either side. Okay? Second is, we're just learning together as a community to take on a little less water. You know what I mean? Okay? And, and to not get caught in our holy huddle. We're just learning together, okay? So, so that the world may see Jesus. You with me? Okay? And, 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 and the goal is, is to be this. To be a ship that's in the water but is not taking on water. Let's keep going. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified and true. Here's the whammy. I don't ask for them for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, stop there. Um, one of the things that I try to do, I don't always do it. One of the things I try to do when I preach is when I read the text, I want for something to stand out to me. To me. And there's some stuff that I tell you. Some of it stood out to me. Some of it didn't stand out to me. I try to faithfully kind of exegete the text. But here's the thing that stood out for me. You ready? That Jesus prayed for you. And Jesus prayed for me. Isn't that cool? Like I just, that just blows my mind that the Son of God would take time, 24 hours before he would go to the cross, and say, I, I, I'm not just praying for these guys, but I'm praying for the generations and the multitudes that would trust God because of their witness to the world. And here we are 2,000 years later at Bayview Glen Church at noon, knowing that the Son of God 2,000 years ago prayed for you. Now that's pretty cool, right? Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about what Jesus is praying for us and why Jesus is praying for us because this is fascinating to me. So I, I, I could probably prove this biblically. I'm not going to. I'm just going to prove it with like world observations. But passion fuels prayer. So if Jesus is praying, it's because he's passionate about something. Passion fuels prayer. I know people that are just kind of prayer people. I know a few. And they just pray for everybody. They're like, they hear a siren and they're like, oh, Lord, I pray that that person would be okay, you know, and there's maybe an accident or something. Or I pray that, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's not an ambulance. That's a police siren. It's like, okay, good Lord, I pray that they would get away or whatever, whatever it is. They're just praying all the time, praying all the time. Most of us need some kind of passion or fuel inside of us to drive us to our knees in prayer. Most of us aren't just praying people, okay? So we're going to do two charts this morning. Here's the first chart. As our passion increases, 
our prayer life increases. You, you, ever, you ever notice that? Okay, let me give you a couple of examples. Oh, dear God, I did not study for this test, but I'm passionate about passing this class. So I swear, if you let me pass, right? How many of you, I don't care how old you are, have prayed that prayer before? One, two, three, raise your hand. Yeah, buddy. And how many of you passed the class? Praise God, he's faithful. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Okay, even the atheist doesn't believe in God when they are thrown out of a plane with no parachute on, gets real passionate about not dying, so their prayer life, oh God, I know I've said you didn't exist many times, and I'm sorry. Good Canadian for you. Okay, let's, let's, let's take the levity out of it, right? Let's not, let's not joke about it. When your kids get sick, you know what I'm saying? You get, you get real prayerful real quick. When your marriage hits a crisis, when your finances hit a crisis, you get real prayerful real quick. See, passion fuels passionate prayer. Passion fuels prayer, but passion fuels passionate prayer. So if Jesus is praying, which he is, he's praying with passion. He's passionate about something. So passionate, in fact, that he's praying for his disciples and he's praying for those who would come after them. And what does he pray for us with passion? Look up here on the screen. He says that they, one, here's the first thing he prays, that they may all be one. He's praying for unity here. As you, Father, and me, and I, and you, so that they may be in us. That's the second thing. So that, here's the purpose, the world may believe that you have sent me. The next verse, he says this exact same thing a different way so that we get it. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. There it is again. He's praying for unity as we are one. I and them and you and me that they would be perfectly one so that, here's the purpose, the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Let's unpack this prayer. Let's start here. Jesus prayed for you. We got it, okay? Got that. First thing he prayed for you is that you would have connection with God. This is what he prayed for you, that you would have connection with God. Now, I think this is absolutely magnificent. I, and I could talk for 30 minutes just on this. But, but here, here's, here's the thing. Jesus prayed for you that we would be one, right? That the church would be one. We're going to talk about unity in a minute. But he also prayed that we would have a connection with God, that they would be in us and I in them as you are in me, so that we would be so united with God that, that when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? We are so one. You've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus says, I want you to have that type of connection with God. That's what I want for you. To be so connected to and with him. And here, here's what I love about Jesus. I love a lot of things about Jesus, but here's one of them. He doesn't pray that we would have more stuff in the world. You know why? It's not going to satisfy you. No matter how much stuff you have, I'm not going to satisfy you. No matter how much success you have, no matter how many toys you have, you will always be unsatisfied. So Jesus prays that you would get a taste of the divine and that you just keep coming back for more. That's how much he cares about you. That's how passionate he is. That's how much he loves you. I listened to this podcast, which I do not recommend for your children, 
but it's uh, Joe Rogan. Is everybody, anybody listen to Joe Rogan podcast? Yeah, sinners is what you are, I'll tell you that. Mm. I was listening to one last night where Joe Rogan is interviewing Mike Tyson. Uh, Mike Tyson was a heavyweight champion of the world when he was 20 years old, made a lot of money. And uh, he was in prison. Mike, Mike Tyson was in prison for, well, we don't have to go there. He was in prison. And, and his, uh, his buddy came to visit him in prison, and this buddy of Mike Tyson's, uh, told him that he was about to sell a bunch of cars of his so he could buy horses. He's like, and Mike Tyson said, horses? Where are you getting horses? And this Mike Tyson, 23 years old, came from a really rough background, came from poverty. and Like it just never dawned on him. He had a bunch of expensive cars because he had made a lot of money by that point. And it never dawned on him he could buy horses. And so he asked this guy, like, what other kind of animals are there out there for purchase? And... He kept asking and kept asking. And if you know the story, Mike Tyson had tigers waiting for him when he came out of prison. He bought tigers. Tigers. Like the big, like tear apart antelope animal that you see at the zoo. Tigers. And here's why. And I quote, he said, because I thought it would be really cool to be driving my Aston Martin and have a tiger next to me. Wow. Number one, I don't disagree. Number two, it's very easy to find parking at that point, don't you think? <laughs> People are like, no, sir, you, no, you go ahead. You, you're fine. You and your tiger, right? And Tyson talks about on this podcast, he talks about I was just never satisfied. All the money I had, all the fame I had, I just poured it, poured it, poured it, poured it. Poured it. I was never, ever, ever satisfied. You know why? Because it's not meant to satisfy you. If you're just flushing it down the toilet. And Jesus doesn't pray that you would have enough money to buy an Aston Martin and a tiger. He prays that you would have connection with God because he loves you. Then he prays that you would have connection with others. And not just connection with others. Jesus prays that we as a body of Christ, as his followers, would be so unified and attached at the hip and so on mission together, we would be so unified as, as it, would, it would be like similar to how he's unified with the Father. That, that we, they would be one as you and I are one. That's what he prays for. And understand that Jesus is praying for unity, not uniformity. Do we know the difference? Jesus is praying for unity, not uniformity. Uniformity is when everybody is the same piece. Unity is when you have a whole bunch of different pieces and they come together to make a greater whole. Okay, uniformity is kind of what I came from in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. I don't know if you've ever been to Scottsdale. Um, you're not missing much. Mm. If Toronto is the most multi-ethnic city in the world, then Scottsdale's got to be the most mono-ethnic city in the world. I tell you what, because everybody looks the same. White, uh, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, upper middle class, able-bodied, pretty sure everybody's male. I mean, just like the picture of privilege, right? And even my friends from here, who are those things? White, Anglo-Saxon, upper middle class, male, whatever. They go to Scottsdale and they come back and they're like, that place is creepy. Like it is Stepford Wives creepy. I'm like, yeah, that's why I live here, right? So, so unity in those types of environments is a little easier, right? Unity on a baseball team because everybody's trying to do the same thing. And everybody's kind of same age, same background, that kind of thing. 
unity in education because we're all kind of pursuing a master's together or whatever it is. But when you've got people from as diverse backgrounds as we have here at Baby Glen Church on a Sunday morning, if you haven't looked around yet, just look around real quick. Look at the diversity in the room. Look, nobody's looking around, right? Not politically correct. Not politically correct, Luke. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't make eye contact, okay? Unity becomes increasingly more difficult. But when we have unity, it becomes increasingly more impressive. Watch. Here's our chart number two. Ready? The greater diversity we have, the more impressed the world is going to get, right? If you can achieve unity within this, diversity in and of itself is not that impressive, right? Okay, cool. This is diverse. 120 different nationalities represented at Baby Glen Church any given Sunday morning. Neat. Neat. Cool. All right? I like that. But when you achieve unity among different socioeconomic status, age group, race, gender, background, whatever, and there's a unity of spirit and purpose so much so that it's like the father and the son. Now watch this. No wonder Jesus prayed for us. (laughs) Right? Because that's hard. Unity is not easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. But Jesus prays for us. And he prays for unity, not uniformity. He doesn't want us to look all the same and be whitewashed and be, you know, the Borg or something, Star Trek fans. You know, he doesn't want to look all the same. What he says is, you are all different pieces. You're the hand, the foot, the eye. That's the analogy, that's the metaphor Paul will use about the body. All doing the same thing such that you are so one in purpose. And what is going to happen? is the world is going to look at that unity and go, whoa. So that's the next step. Jesus prayed for connection with God, connection with others, so that the world would know two things, that Jesus was sent and that God loves them. That's what he says in verse 22. So that the world would know that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's number one. And number two, that God loves them. Extraordinarily and unconditionally and without reservation. That's what God wants us to know about himself. And that's what Jesus prayed for us. You are now taking this baton forward. This is why the New Testament writers talk over and over and over about maintaining the unity of spirit and the bond of peace over and over and over. That's why they write to the early church and chastise people and, and exhort people that are causing factions and disunity within the body. Like, look, I know it's hard, but you got to put yourself aside so that we have unity. Because unity speaks volumes. It manifests the glory of God for the world. So that they would know that Jesus has been sent and that God loves them in an extraordinary way. Let's break his prayer down to even simpler terms. Jesus is praying for connection with God and others so that the world would know that he's been sent and that God loves them. That's it. I want to tell you one quick story and then... um, and then we'll be done here. Because I heard this story this last week and it helped me to kind of wrap my mind around a little bit of what God is calling us to when he calls us to love the world well. 
Uh, and and uh, the reason I like this story is that when Jesus is praying for his disciples and he's praying that he would be glorified in them, when he tells them, I have manifested God to you, again, he's talking about behavior. Understand that? He's talking about behavior. And I think so many of us, especially if you come from a Christian background like I did, I grew up going to church and, you know, knee high to a grasshopper, we were given these kind of tools um, to share the gospel with others. They're called gospel tracts or whatever, and it's stuff like the four spiritual laws. Has anybody heard of the four spiritual laws? Yep, okay. Or the bridge, and I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying that they don't work. In fact, I shared the bridge with a friend of mine. I was 18 years old. He was 16. He repented, uh, believed in Jesus as a Jesus follower now in a limited access country in the Middle East telling telling people about how much God loves them. So those are good things. But what Jesus is talking about here is our behavior. He's talking about the way we love people, not just our words, although our words are part and parcel there. He's talking about the way we love people. And I know that sometimes it can be a little scary to say to somebody, well, you know, Jesus, you know, came to die on the cross in replacement for us and substitute for you and me for our sin. And he came to die for me and he came to die for the worst of all sinners. And that's you, you know, whatever. Like that's, that's, that can be scary. You know, that can be scary. You know what? Loving somebody is not that scary. Loving somebody well, it's not that scary. And it's not that hard, to be quite honest with you. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. So here's the story. There's a guy named Bob Goff who uh, is attorney at Pepperdine University and, and teaches at Pepperdine University. He's written a couple of books. He's a Christian guy. If you haven't read any of Bob Goff's books, there's one called Love Does that's just extraordinary. A couple others out there I would recommend Bob Goff. He's a brilliant, brilliant man and quite eccentric. <laughs> He's in a little wild. But he tells this story about having a neighbor who had cancer, and it uh, progressed to stage four and metastasized, and she was kind of in her last days on earth, and he went over to visit her, and she began to talk about a hot dog that she remembered from her childhood, which if you've ever been around somebody who had cancer and in their last days on the planet, they begin to talk about some stuff and say some stuff that you're going, wow, that that just came out of your mouth. Wow, that is, what in the world? Because they just start to lose their faculties a little bit. So Goff is listening to this gal and thinking, I don't, you know, what, what, is, what is really happening here? But he said, you know what? Apparently this means a lot to her, this hot dog that she remembers from when she was a kid. And she described it in detail. She described the toppings and how it smelled and how it tasted and everything else. So Goff said, you know what? I'm going to go find a hot dog for her. And so he did. He went and found a hot dog. And he found every single topping exactly as she described it. And put all those little toppings on the hot dog and made it perfect. I don't know how you like your hot dogs. I'm a hot dog mustard. That's it. But this gal liked a whole lot more on there. So he just piles the stuff on this hot dog. And the next day he brings it to her. And unfortunately, she was at the stage in her cancer where she could no longer eat, especially something like that. So Goff began to cut it up into little pieces and chopped it up into fine bits and fed her a hot dog 
about a half teaspoon at a time so that she would know that God loves her, that she was cared for, that she was listened to. You know, somebody in your life needs to be loved like that right now. They need to be loved like that right now. They need to be listened to. And, not, and I know, see, I, I do this. I, I know you do it because I do it. Sometimes when we listen to people and they start telling us about a hot dog, we're like, this is the dumbest thing ever. Why am I listening to this, right? And you're out of your mind. Or, or this is even worse. This is even worse. You ever, you ever in a fight with your spouse and they're telling you something and you're listening to them, not so that you understand their point of view, but you're formulating your rebuttal in your own mind and you're listening so as to tell them why their point of view is garbage, right? I know that you do that because Amy tells me she does that. So... Listen, I, I, the, the, the golf story was so compelling to me for three reasons. One is, is that he listened, right? Is that he listened. He listened well. He listened hard. He listened to her needs. He, he, he listened not just to what was coming out of her mouth, but was in her heart. He could have just kind of passed it off as this random thing or whatever, but he didn't. He listened. And even if the need didn't make sense to him, he sacrificed in order to meet the need. He went and found everything that he needed to find to put it together just how she described it. And if you want pickles on it, pickles, that's fine. If you want pepperoncinis on it, that's fine. If you want mayonnaise on it, that's fine. That's all disgusting as far as I'm concerned, but he made the sacrifice to go make it happen the way she needed it. And then when she was unable to eat it, he exercised a great deal of patience, didn't he? Just half bite at a time, just half bite at a time. Listen, men and women of God, somebody in your life needs to experience Jesus. And you, you may be the only Jesus they see this week, this month, this year. They need you to listen to them. They need you to sacrifice and they need you to exercise patience. Hey, listen, listen, just look up here, look up here. Is this not what God does for us every single day? Is this not what God did for us at the cross? He knows our need, he sacrificed, and he's patient with us. This is the kind of behavior and love that Jesus is calling us to here. Radical unity. Oneness with God in such a way that the Spirit of God kind of becomes the wind in our sails, moving us forward on mission and toward one another in love. Today, men and women of God, you have to understand that you are the Jesus that somebody needs to see. Who is it? And how are you going to listen? sacrifice, and exercise patience today, this week, this month, this year? Is it your spouse, your kids, your coworker, family member? Who is it? And know, know that even if it seems difficult, Jesus knows enough that he prayed for you 2,000 years ago. Let's pray together.
Jesus, we count it a responsibility and a privilege to be salt and light in the world. Teach us to be good listeners. Teach us to sacrifice. Teach us, teach us to be patient so that the world will know that you love them. So that the world will know, Father, that you sent your Son for them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we as Bayview Glen Church would be unified as you are, one God in three persons. Eternity past and into eternity future. Spirit of God, move us forward that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear. Those in our life. That we can manifest your glory and your name too. Teach us to be a people that loves like that. In Christ's name, people of God together said, amen. Let's stand together as we respond.